Welcome to the Long Thread Podcast about spinning, stitching, and weaving by hand. The podcast is presented by Long Thread Media, publishers of Spinoff, Handwoven, Piecework, and Little Looms magazines. Find us online at longthreadmedia.com. This episode is sponsored by Trainway Silks. You'll find the largest variety of silk spinning fibers, silk yarn, and silk threads and ribbons at trainwaysilks.com. Choose from a rainbow of hand-dyed colors. Love natural? Their array of wild silk and silk blends provide choices beyond white. Trainway Silks, where superior quality and customer service are guaranteed. I'm your host, Longthread Media co-founder, Anne Merrow. Emily Nicolaides is a fiber artist who has a new book out called Amazing Circular Weaving. I spoke to her at her home in Cyprus. So Emily, you have this new book called Amazing Circular Weaving. And I was going to say that some people might not realize how complex and uh, rich weaving on a circular loom can be. And then I realized that I should just really own up to it and say, I had no idea until I took a look at your book that circular weaving wasn't just kind of the God's eye weave in a circle. So what draws you to this kind of weaving? Yeah, I mean, I think that's the understanding that a lot of us had going in. It's like, I don't know if you did any of this growing up or had seen it, like the paper plate weaving. Um, that was about the extent of a lot of the the circular weaving that was happening for so long. And I became interested in shape tapestry weaving um, in 2016 and um, became really interested in like, how do I weave something other than a rectangle? Um, I had been doing that for... Um, a few years at that point doing pattern weaving. And um, I got, you know, I wanted to learn how to make different shapes. And so I actually started with a, with an arch. I wanted to figure out how to weave an arch. And um, I wanted the warp to radiate from the center. And so that was kind of how this began. And then after I wove a couple arches, there was an oval, and then it all kind of naturally led into like, okay, let's simplify and bring it back to circles. So that's how it started for me. And, but obviously it's something that's, that you've been going with for a while. What, what keeps you going back to it? Like what, what is it that has so many possibilities for you? I, I mean, I think a lot of it was just like, hadn't really been explored and it was interesting and circles have been something that have repeated themselves um, in my work for the last like 10 years or so. Um, I actually went back to the university I graduated from last week and was talking with my um, my old advisor. And for my senior thesis, I had done this like um, circular crocheted breast and um and there was like this whole like sound art component to it. And it was something I like stretched over pool noodles and it was about like 24 inches wide. And she was bringing it up and like, look how close what I'm making now looks to what I made back then. And um, there was all this meaning about like um, motherhood and ancestry and things like that. And so to like circle back, you know, pun intended um, to what I'm doing now, it just seems to be connected. And there's something that's so meditative about circular weaving. And that gives me this like sense of wholeness as a person. Um, and um, I think that kind of symbolism is just really intriguing. And there's so much there. And especially when I consider I didn't do any weaving until after I graduated from school. And when I found weaving, um, 
I just found a lot of, it, it was very grounding for me, the way the warp and the weft came together. Um, I could like go on a whole story about that, but the way the warp and the weft come together um, felt like it was bringing myself together to make something new and unique. And so between the actual technique of weaving and then now to be exclusively doing that in a circle, um, it's like, it's almost like a self-portrait in a way. Um, yeah. Wow. So you're talking about warp and weft. And one of the things that's very different about circular weaving is that you don't have any selvages, right? No. Unless you take <laughs> it off. <laughs> yeah. And even that, well, then then you have essentially like a, a bottom selvage that's kind of like a footer, but you don't have those edge selvages. Mm -mm. And because of that, it makes it really great for beginners coming into weaving. There's all these things you don't have to deal with. You don't have to worry about, um, you know, that bowing that happens with weaving for, for beginners and intermediate weavers alike. I mean, I can't tell you how many times I like, I just tried a new yarn and I'm like back at the beginning. Um, and because of that, it makes it a really great way for people who haven't done any weaving before to jump in and make something and like avoid some of those like classic weaver problems um, right from the beginning. Well, you mentioned taking it off the loom and that's that, you know, when I think of selvages, I think, okay, there's at least two sides or you know it's not going to ravel. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and when you're working with a circular loom, one of the things I found surprising in your book is how many of the items you don't necessarily need to leave the loom in. Yeah, especially when it comes to like uh, weaving functional wares. Um, yeah, you can you can take it off and you can re reuse whatever hoop you're using um, to warp it on. And I mean, just very generally speaking, some half hitches around the outside edge. That's like plenty to to uh, to hold the weaving, and so that it doesn't unravel, just like you would do with a tapestry. When you were first weaving, you were working kind of a classic tapestry tradition and, and technique group. Yeah, I, I was mostly doing pattern weaving. I had gotten, what is it, the Pattern Weavers Directory. Um, uh, that was mm -hmm. my first weaving book, and I was working my way through that. So I had taken a two-week workshop at Penland School of Craft. I got a scholarship to go. That was my first weaving experience, and I just, from the first day, was in love with the whole thing. Um, the sounds, the dressing of the loom, the weaving, the counting, just the order of it. And so when I finished that workshop, I came home and um, found a four harness shacked floor loom on uh, Craigslist and got that pattern book and just started working through it. Yeah, it's amazing how many different techniques you can, it's amazing how many different patterns the, the loom can take you on. But then, you know, essentially tapestry, you're choosing all of the patterns yourself. Like you could, yeah. you could make all of those things, you just have to go under and over every single thread. Yeah. Yeah. So the tapestry happened for me a bit later, um, like three years later, I was back at Penland for a two month concentration and I was taking a, um, an ECOT and tapestry weaving workshop with Mary Zikafus and Tommy Scanlon mm -hmm. came, who's just, do you know, I'm, I'm sure you know Tommy. She's amazing. I do. She's had a series in uh, Little Looms magazine. Yeah. Yes. So yeah. Mm -hmm. um, she came for like a weekend and we did a really like intensive um, tapestry focused class on a frame loom. Um, and I was just, I, it opened up a lot of ideas about the possibilities. And that was when the tapestry really came into play for me. And I started playing with that. And then with the encouragement of Mary and um, other people I was learning from at the time, um, I ended up going on this whole like shaped tapestry weaving journey. Uh, and just found it really exciting to see like 
to challenge myself and be like, what other shapes could I weave? Like I was interested in like what I was weaving within those shapes, but it was more about like, okay, how can I push this? How can I get something other than a rectangle? Well, and with circular weaving, you have a, a hoop or something that's holding the circle for you. I'm just curious how you approached weaving an oval or an arch. How, how did you sort of set that up? Yeah, so I... Um, if you don't mind. So if you don't mind, say. <laughs> yeah, no, it, uh, it, it took a lot of uh, troubleshooting and I had a lot of help, but I built a um, just really rough loom out of two by fours with some nails um, around the outer edge and um, wandered around a hardware store until I found these like washers. And I was like, oh, maybe there's something I can do with these washers. And um, now I use like metal craft O-rings, but um, the same idea, I basically found a way to like suspend that washer um, about two thirds of the way up the loom. And so I had like two um, strings coming to the bottom that were kind of like the flap in the arch or like the break point in the arch. And then I, uh, God, I had to do this like 10 times, but I stretched the warp from like the edge. I would have to show you a picture, but I stretched it from the edge, um, wrapped it around the, like one of the two strings in the middle and like came all the way around, used that washer as like a pivot point and then came back down the other side. And, um, the, you know, I don't know, the structural integrity of that first piece especially was not great, but I got what I was going for. <laughs> In a way that actually reminds me of something that uh, Sarah Sweat and Rebecca Metzoff do, which is fringeless tapestry. So they they essentially create, the, uh, I think I've seen Rebecca use a jig. So she she's kind of creates another another loom within her loom. It sounds like a similar idea of how am I going to set up the frame so that I'm going to be able to weave what I want on it. Yeah. Yeah. So you mentioned, you know, school and your, and your senior work. It sounds like you have an art background. Is that right? Yeah. So I went to um, undergrad for, for art and art history. I got a double major at a small state school in Virginia and focused on ceramics and sculpture um, in my studio classes. And so uh, at the time, the school wasn't offering any fiber art, but I started playing around with crochet in my sculpture classes. And um, ceramics gave me uh, like an intro to craft that I didn't know I needed. I thought I, I would do ceramics forever. And then um, I had a whole body, a semester's worth of work, just crumble. And uh, that was kind of it for me with ceramics. <laughs> <laughs> so um, not quite yeah, as forgiving yeah. as my personality needs. Um, I find weaving to be much more. Uh, it's It loves me back in a way that ceramics never would. <laughs> Well, you know, I was wondering because you know you you have you, your undergraduate schooling was in was in arts in, was in an art department, and then you went to Penland, and I think for some people, going from um, the way that you approach art education to the way that you approach you know craft teaching, which is often apprenticeship and very hands on and very you know technique based, as opposed to being vastly reductive here, but <laughs> technique-based as opposed to more individual expression-based. Um, was that something that appealed to you or are you still kind of having a foot in both? That's a good question. I think when I finished school, I, I hadn't done any art before college. It was just something I fell into. Uh, and so I was still very much like, I don't know what I'm doing. I hadn't like 
you know, I'd had a couple of years in school to explore that, but I knew I needed more um, education and I hadn't really resonated with a particular style. I was young, like everyone is at that point, And I didn't know like who I was or what I was trying to say. And so the natural step seemed to be like, okay, let's, you know, let's hone some techniques here. At least let me figure out um, how to do whatever I'm going to do well. And so I think it was helpful for me to start at that point. And I always found like trying to figure out what I was trying to say to be a bit of a stumbling block, uh, because I felt like it had to be big and important and, um, maybe it does for some people, but I don't know that that is totally necessary when you're doing this kind of work. I mean, there's always this, you know, there's the classic art versus craft thing. And at this point it's like, ah, I don't really care. I don't have the energy for it. If what I'm making (laughs) has meaning, great. If not, like, it, it doesn't mm-hmm. matter at this point, but that was a big, um, I don't, I don't know, just like confusion, um, of how to navigate that. And then you wind up with design in there somewhere. And when I, when I look at some of the projects in your book, it, it has that similar kind of, um, exploring ideas concretely, but also, you know, what, what am I trying to, what's the look that I'm trying to achieve and, and how does it fit in with my style? And, there are just a, a wide range of items in your book. There are some things that are, you know, seem to be much more yarn driven. And then there are some that are kind of have more formal play, like what's what happens if the circle doesn't start in the middle or <laughs> things like that. Uh, that. That's been a big way that I like I have uh, approached the research. It's just like starting with a question like, is that like, here's an idea. Is this possible? Can I make this into a circle? How does it look like? Or um, some of the designs like came from challenges I had like early on in the pandemic when there was a yarn shortage and I was trying to make a pattern for my students at the time. And it was like, nobody can get any yarn. Okay, let's see what we can do with scraps. And that's where I came up with the, there's like a really beginner inlay pattern that is like, looks like confetti. And that's where that came from. It's like, all right, this is going to be about materials because we're challenged at the moment. And the result is really lovely. And people have continued to make that one um, since I designed it. And yeah, so you can really do both. You've said that you you mentioned that when your students were learning. Now, you are based in Cyprus, right? Yes. Yeah, I moved here so a year and a half ago. So are you teaching online or? Yes. Oh, wow. Okay, so you moved there during the pandemic. <laughs> yeah, I did. Uh, so I had started teaching online in 2019. Um, that was around the time that I, I was moving into like, doing art full time and trying to figure that out and teaching has been a big part of that. But before then there was like two years of teaching in-person workshops multiple times a month. Um, I was teaching at, um, an art center in Richmond, Virginia, which where I was previously, I was doing pop-up workshops and was doing some traveling for workshops. And so I did a lot of in-person and, uh, it's a lot of work to be the one to gather the materials and carry all my bags to the place where I'm going. And so I needed other ways to do it. And it just happened to be perfect timing to be figuring out how to teach online. And so I've done a lot of different things with online teaching and like pre-recorded workshops. There was a 12 month membership program that I did for a while. I've done a lot of live workshops as well. And so 
um, yeah, so I'm still doing some of that from Cyprus and it's been a really, um, helpful part of, I mean, that's how, that's how the research was funded for the book. I didn't even realize that was what was happening at the time, but because I was teaching students and I wanted to take them further and they were asking for things, it was like, okay, let me figure out another new pattern. Let's keep going with this and see what I can do next and keep it fresh and exciting for everyone. There is something about having people who can ask you um, what they need to know that helps you take the next step. Absolutely. Like having something to respond to. It's like I've spent a lot of time by myself in the studio uh, and that can only take me so far. It's like I can come up with ideas all day, but if it's not what someone wants, there's like, I don't know, there's no point for me. I like that collaborative part of um of making, whether it's like I'm working with a client to make a commission or I'm working with my students and getting ideas from them and like seeing where they're at in their process and what they want to learn and what their goals are and then trying to meet those. Um, that's very inspiring for me. So you mentioned research and developing new ideas. One of the things I'm finding most surprising looking through your book is the combination of different tapestry techniques on this form I had never seen before. And, and what you said about starting in tapestry makes sense, but you have sumac, you have raya loops. Are those things that were were complicated to adapt to a circular loom? Or was it kind of once you knew what you wanted, it wasn't, it was more intuitive? So uh, things like raya loops and sumac were like pretty easy to adapt. Those are things I was teaching pretty much from the beginning, I think 2017, I had like three, I was teaching tabby weave in a circle and like how to weave stripes, uh, raya loops and sumac. And that's really where we were starting. And also just like looking around online as circular weaving began to grow and more people getting into it. Those were the techniques that people kept going back to because they're really lovely texturally. And once you kind of get the hang with the hang of them, they're really intuitive to work with. And so things like that were much easier to adapt. Um, but then there were other techniques. I got into hand manipulated warp and weft techniques, and those were more difficult, like Danish medallions and Lino. And so those are ones that took a little bit more work to kind of piece together to figure out how to do them in a circle. Uh, but they're also like a totally different look, much more um, airy and light, um, those lace-like weaving patterns. So yeah, so kind of all over the place. Some of them took a, a bit longer to develop and figure out, and others were were easy. Yeah. Well, one of the things I'm noticing here is that you have a lot of kind of open space, um, maybe, you know, uncovered warp, maybe I guess I should say, or when if you have a, an open center. So that's a little bit different than a lot of techniques that are on a frame loom or a floor loom. Yeah, I mean, because we leave so many of these pieces on the hoop, we have this like whole realm of possibilities with negative space. And so I want to, t I always want to take full advantage of that and use it. And so why not figure out ways to incorporate that? I mean, having that open center was something that like technically I was using uh, to get a really nice balanced warp in a way that just stretching the yarn back and forth, you're not always able to achieve uh, now I teach both of those in the book. I, I call it closed center and open center, uh, weaving or circular weaving techniques, but 
Yeah. So that's where the open centers came in. But then like having that space in the middle led me to think about like, what are other ways that we can incorporate some negative space in here and really take full advantage of having these weavings stay on their, on their looms. And yeah, so that's been really fun to play with. And that was also something I was not seeing around a lot when I was looking at weaving, when I was looking at circular weaving. So it felt like a gap, I mean, a literal gap and also just like uh, you know, something new to add to what was, what was going on in the weaving space. So are you, you're finding that people are, are seeking you out specifically to learn about circular weaving. I, I can see people think, looking at your work and saying, oh, that's cool. But are there, is there a growing um, interest in circular weaving overall that you see? Yeah, definitely. So that's kind of how the book came to be during the pandemic. It really shot up on, you know, if you're searching it on Etsy or Pinterest or Instagram or wherever, there's like thousands and thousands of hits for it. And I think that was because it's something, once you get the hoop warped, you can sit on the couch and do it. You can sit at the kitchen table and do it. And so during that wild time uh, where all these people were looking for things to do at home, but they didn't necessarily have like space devoted to it. They didn't want to invest in a full weaving setup. This was a really great way to like dip your toe in and, and see how it works. And so I think that was really appealing. And also because of the size of these, these are not, I mean, you can spend hours and hours and hours doing it if you're doing more complicated techniques, but it's also something you can do really quickly. So it's quick satisfaction. You get it done, you hang it on the wall. Um, and so it really gained in popularity. So when um, my publisher reached out, they were specifically looking some, for someone to write a book on circular weaving and uh yeah, and so I was I was ready. I'd done all the research at that point to to do that. So I never really planned on it turning into a book, but I'm I'm so glad it did. And in the book there are templates, so it's not necessarily something where you have to go out and invest in uh specialized equipment or it looks like how firm a a a warp, how firm attention on the warp do you need to do this kind of weaving? Yeah, I mean, it's pretty, it's pretty firm. Uh, I, I always tell my students a good balance is you want the warp to still move, but you don't want it to bend your hoop into an oval. So somewhere in between there. Uh, and yeah, so it does, it does end up, you know, a really nice tension with the hoops. Yeah, is that what you asked? <laughs> Was that the question? Oh, well, the, I mean, the, of course, the, the hoops are probably really accessible. I was just looking at the cardboard loom template and thinking, oh, yeah. is that something I could really actually get started doing with something I have at home? Yeah, definitely. I mean, anything, anything that's like smaller than 12 inches, the cardboard is going to work just fine. Um, it, you know, when they get too big, okay, it's challenging, it's going to bend in half. Uh, but like, I do have a project in there that's done on a hula hoop, uh, a, uh, a rag rug, circular <laughs> rag rug. And I mean, hula hoops, you know, they have some, they have some bend to them, but, uh, with weaving that kind of like chunky material, it doesn't need to be quite as tight as say some of the other ones, uh, the other ones do because the weft you're using is so, you know, it's fabric. It's so chunky. You know, I hadn't even thought about that. The, the edges of a lot of these hoops are kind of slippery. Is that difficult to get something where I, I'm just envisioning something where you're like trying to keep the sides on while you wind the warp? Is that is that difficult? Or is it just a trick that's not immediately obvious? 
Yeah. I mean, there are some ways around it. So I, um, like embroider hoops, you know, there's, there's the, the grain of the wood is like helping hold all the warps in place. And then you put the outer hoop on the inner hoop and like everything's staying in place. So when I'm teaching beginner, beginner workshops, that's what we start with. But a lot of the hoops, like you mentioned, are slippery metal rings, hula hoops. Uh, and so to kind of navigate that, we wrap our warp around the ring at least one extra time to help hold it in place. And that's usually enough uh, to get that warp on. And then once you begin weaving, things aren't aren't moving around too much. What other kind of uh, challenges do people find when they're getting started doing this? Yeah, especially with the open center technique, getting your ring centered from the beginning is is pretty tricky. And there's a learning curve there for sure. Um, what we end up doing is essentially suspending the metal ring within the hoop with some like what I call uh, supplemental ties, some like extra pieces of yarn to like help get it in place and getting it centered can be really tricky. And so I always encourage my students to take a lot of time with that because um I don't, I mean, anytime you're warping a loom, there's like all of this time involved, right? It takes way more time than you think it would. <laughs> and so we do have that in circular weaving, although it goes much more quickly than warping something like a floor loom. Uh, there is still a bit of time and patience required from the start, but the satisfaction of like getting that hoop nicely warped so you can get to the weaving, the fun part, uh, it makes it all worth it. <laughs> yeah, that's true. I think a lot of a lot of weaving, pretty much every kind of weaving, you have to you, you have to get the beginning right, and yet it's the part that like I need to develop all these skills, but I I can't actually do anything fun with them yet. <laughs> it's like somebody said, warping is not a separate hobby. Yeah, <laughs> you wouldn't do it unless you got to weave on it afterwards. <laughs> right. So you mentioned that part of what you're doing now is you know weaving for your own art or working on commissions, is there a, a big difference between what you have, between the projects that you put together for other people to follow and um, what you're developing for your own work? Yeah, you know, honestly, I am, now that the book is complete, I've been trying to figure out what I'm weaving next because for so long, the techniques I'm teaching were things I was working with for clients. And now I kind of feel like now that I've like, tied up all of this research in a bow and it's like in this book between two covers I feel this freedom of like oh I can do anything I don't have to like just do what I've been doing for the last five years and yeah so the answer is I don't know yet I'm like trying to figure out what I want to mm. make going forward is it is it circular is it not I'm not sure I've been playing with some ideas that are a, a bit of a departure but um, still within the same themes. So it's interesting. I do have, I'm like getting ready to do some commissions in the new year. And I do have people who are asking for things reminiscent of what I was, what I was doing for so long, even though since moving to Cyprus, my style has kind of shifted. And so, uh, I still really enjoy working like that. So I'm, I'm going to continue doing it for as long as people want it. But yeah, now, now there's all this new freedom and, I mean, part of it too is like the commission work I've done in the past or collections that I've made or that I've showed. Uh, every time I would weave something, I was considering it, uh, not always consciously, but it, it was a part of the research. And so as I was looking at techniques and things I could teach, obviously I have to practice them before I can teach them. And so I was incorporating that into my work just kind of naturally. 
And so maybe that's what I'm doing now. I'm just going to in a little bit of a different direction for what I'm teaching. I'm not sure. Um, I mean, this has never been really something I planned out. It just kind of evolved uh, <laughs> in this direction. So so you mentioned that your style has changed a little bit since you moved to Cyprus. Can you say more about that? How, was that deliberate or is it just something that's evolving? Part of it was the logistics of moving my studio to a different country. I left a lot of, I, I didn't bring any looms with me. I left a lot of things that I was using regularly there in, in the States or I sold it or donated it. And so moving to Cyprus and like setting up a new studio and trying to figure it out. A lot of it came from like, how do I make this as efficient as possible? I don't know how long I'm going to be here for. Originally when I moved, I had said, all right, I'm going to be here for a year and now it's been longer and I'm very comfortable. Uh, so, so that was part of it. Um, I, I brought some yarn with me, but not a whole lot. Everything I packed in, my husband and I moved and we brought four, checked bags and that was everything we brought with us. So not that oh much, my gosh. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> not much room for yarn. Um, although I did manage to bring some to get me started, but yeah, so that was one thing I did is I looked around, did a lot of research, trying to figure out how do I efficiently, uh, and cost effectively build my, my yarn inventory again. And so I ended up ordering, uh, a lot of super bulky weight, wool yarns. I decided that sounds nice. I'm going to start there. So that's what I've been working with. So that has been um, a new parameter of my work. It's like all of my yarn is the same. It's just in different colors. How do I work with that? Versus before I I would work with any kind of yarn. And when you're working on a piece that is like remaining on the hoop, you don't have to worry about, you know, what's the balance like? Is this going to be weird when I take it off using a really thin yarn next to a thick yarn? All of that. So I was was mixing a lot of my yarns before and now just because I don't have those, I've been working with the same yarn. So that was one parameter. A second parameter was um, the company that I was getting all of my my hoops from uh, only ships to North America. And so I was working with embroidery hoops and trying to figure that out, but that was a whole thing. And so I started to ask the question, okay, what happens if I'm taking all of my weavings off of the loom? Like, how does this change things? And so that has gone through several process, um, several, uh, I don't know, troubleshooting processes to figure out what, you know, what I, what I do now that I don't have the hoops that I'm used to working with. And so the work I've been making this year, all of it comes off of the loom, which I'll also talk about my loom in a minute because that was a whole thing to figure out too. But these pieces, they come off the loom and I tie them off. I tie the warps off, you know, add my my double half hitches. And um, then I've been mounting them onto round canvases and stuffing them. And so you get this like really lovely, like undulating texture from that. They're like super dimensional, which is different. These are not flat like the work I was making. Um, and kind of bringing this like sculptural element into the work. And so that is what is really similar to what I was doing in undergrad, um, which is interesting. And so, yeah, I'm basically like hand stitching these weavings to canvas, adding polyfill in, sculpting them, stitching them to the back. And I really like that, that process just from like a technical standpoint, it's really enjoyable to do. And I really like the, the effects of that. 
So, um, yeah, the changes I've made have been because I'm in a new country and the materials I can get are different and my space is different and my loom is different. Whereas before I had all of these, I was just kind of getting wood and building whatever shape that I wanted to make. Um, uh, I ended up, uh, it was kind of amazing how it worked out. I was ready to get like a bigger loom and, um, was looking online and trying to figure out, okay, what am I going to, what am I going to get? What can I get? And I found this handmade wooden clothes rack on Facebook marketplace. And I was like, that's interesting. And it's just, it's really simple, but it's very well made, very sturdy. Um, it's about, it's like a meter and a half by a meter and a half. So it's, it's a pretty good size. And, um, I, so I purchased that from someone who had built it for, for his daughter. So, um, yeah, I don't know, just really sweet, the history in it. She really enjoyed it and she's older now and wanted something different. Um, but yeah, so I added my nails around the edge and I've like turned that into my loom. And so everything I've been making, I'm making on that. And so I'm very much restricted by the size of it. I have like a couple of sizes I work with. And also because I'm mounting these on canvases, that's a new parameter as well. And so, yeah, it's very much like I'm just responding to the environment I have and what I can get and, um, yeah, making within those parameters. So, but I, I, I prefer having the, those restrictions. <laughs> I find it helps me rather than having it too open-ended. Yeah, it's an opportunity for creativity. Now, you said that the that the loom is a meter and a half by a meter and a half. Does that mean it's square as opposed to circular? Yeah. So you're weaving circularly in a square form? Yes, that's correct. Yeah, so I stretch the the warp all the way across. Sometimes I have my rings in the middle. I've also been removing them and experimenting with that as well. Um, but yeah, so I weave these circles on a square loom. And taking the weavings off the hoop also means that you can do all kinds of other things with it. Like, you know, you talked about a rag rug, for example, and you couldn't leave a hoop in. No. I, well, I would think it would be very inconvenient to <laughs> leave the hoop in. <laughs> it doesn't sound very comfy for walking. <laughs> no. <laughs> you know, that it was a trend. It's a trend that we've been seeing for a while where that people would leave things on the hoop, whether it be embroidery or um, woven pieces. But, you know, the sort of the the classic expectation is that people don't have a, a loom or a hoop or something for every project. So um, I, I would think that there that being able to take it off the hoop would be really kind of freeing, even though it's difficult. Yeah, it is. It's like suddenly something that I've been used to making these like really, you know, flat, rigid pieces that hang really nicely on the wall. Once it's done, it's done. Like there's nothing else to do other than tuck the ends. And to take them off, it was like every time I take a piece off, it's like you don't know what's going to happen, how it's going to bow, like what kinds of like ripples you're going to get in the cloth. But I'm really trying to like lean into that and for a long time, I was like avoiding those imperfections. I think that was, or quote unquote imperfections. I think that was part of what was so appealing about leaving pieces on the loom was not having to uh, worry about what was going to happen. Uh, and now that I'm like kind of embracing those, I really love the the texture and the opportunity that those, um, I don't know, unexpected um, challenges present. I was going to say that, you know, 
for a lot of folks, if something comes out like you weren't expecting, you say, oh, that's a design element. But that actually is exactly what you're talking about. You're talking about this is a formal challenge and how am I going to play with it? And that seems like a design element. Yeah, absolutely. And I'll, I'll be honest. I mean, a lot, I think it's easy to be like, oh yeah, I, I wanted that to happen. It's part of it. Right. But uh, <laughs> honestly, as an artist, like in my studio, it's always devastating at first, <laughs> especially before I was mm -hmm. recognizing it. I remember the first arch that I wove back in 2016, I took it off and it shriveled up and I cried and I hated it. And uh, just like <sighs> have to go through this whole emotional process about it. And then in the end, I'm like, oh no, wait, okay. It's good. I just needed to like get to know this this object that I created and poured myself into. I have to get to know it in a new way once it comes off because it becomes this whole other thing once it's like it's cloth. It's no longer just this like stretched. It's not stretched cloth. It's loose. It, it has life to it. So you mentioned that living in a different country does present some challenges in terms of supplies and materials. Do you have an artistic community or a weaving community where you are? I'm like definitely starting to get involved in the creative community here. I had a really cool opportunity to show my work in a few galleries over the summer in a couple of different cities. And in doing that, I'm like starting to get to know people. But as far as fiber art specific goes, it it isn't... Uh, there isn't as much of a fiber art community here as I was used to living on the East Coast. And I think part of that is because it's seen as like a very old world traditional thing, which is just interesting to note. Um, there are some really amazing weavers doing really interesting work here. And it's cool to like see what people are making, but for the most part, it's something that people are like, oh, that's that's for the ayahs, that's for the grandmothers. And <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I'm really enjoying a couple, I'm learning, I'm enjoying learning about these like traditional Cypriot weaving techniques because there is this whole um, history to not just the woven, but to fiber art in general here. And so a couple of months ago, I was able to take a, a workshop where I learned um, one very traditional Cypriot weaving style called Fithiotiko, and it has been done since the Middle Ages. It's, it's, it's inlay. It's an inlay weaving style with very specific patterns, and every pattern represents something. And it was really cool to go to the, the village it origi originated from. Um, this village is called Fiti and they have the Cyprus Weaving Museum there. It's something that's protected by UNESCO and um, is funded by the by the government. We have a, a ministry of handcrafts here that does a lot of work to make sure that these, these traditional handcrafts are not lost to history. And so it's I'm like starting to go that direction and learning more about these things. And it's opening up my ideas of like, what, you know, what can I do with these things that I'm learning? And, and that's really exciting. And so people are always really surprised when I talk about I'm a weaver, uh, because that's not something they encounter very often. A lot of artists here are painters or ceramicists or sculptors, but not so much weaving. And so uh, I'm learning all of the terms to describe it to people, but even still, they don't always know what I'm talking about. <laughs> So was it what is it about Cyprus that made you decide to pick up and move your family there? 
Yeah, so I'm half Cypriot, half American, and uh, for the most part, I grew up in the U.S., but I have a lot of family here and had always wanted to move here, and it had just never been the right timing, and an opportunity came up, and we said, okay, let's let's go, and uh, yeah, so it wasn't, it wasn't totally random. I had been here many times before. I grew up taking Greek lessons, although I'm like, I'm, I'm attempting to learn a lot of Greek while I'm here, I'm like... <laughs> It's shaky at best, um, but yeah. So I have I have a lot of family here. Um, yeah, so we've had a lot of help since we moved here, navigating and figuring things out. Um, my studio is actually in my yaya's garden, my grandmother's garden, and so I get to see her every day. We've never lived in the same place, and so it's really special being a part of each other's routines and I show her everything I make. She always did a lot of fiber art and has really inspired me. And so it's really, really cool to like share that with her and show her what I'm making. And she's interested and confused, and uh, but she's into it. <laughs> so where you live, is it, a, is it a small town? Is it a big city? What's the sort of terrain where you find yourself? Yeah, so I'm on the southern coast of Cyprus in uh, a, a city on the sea. Uh, it's called Limassol, and it's a it's a medium sized city and uh, very very urban. I kind of live on the outskirts, but where my grandmother lives and where my studio is is kind of in the center of the city. And so I live more out in the country, so I get a little bit of everything. I'm also very close to the sea. Do a lot of swimming in the warmer months and. I I really like being a part of nature and because so Cyprus is an island and because it's so small, you can like do so many things in the same day. And so that's one thing I really enjoy is it's a quick trip to go to the mountains, quick drive to the beach. And um, that's been very inspiring for me. And also I think it's just, I, I don't know, that's what people do here. They're Nature is like very much a part of, of life. Even in the winter time, everybody's outside. Um, Everywhere you go, there's like those like outdoor heaters because people just want to be outside and they're used to entertaining outside. And um, it's a very relaxed, laid back culture in that way. And uh, so that's had a big impact on how I'm making as well. So one of the things that can be a big challenge if you move to a new place, uh, particularly different country, is, you know, how how to develop your own community and particularly as an artist where so much of what you do is on your own in your studio. So it seems like, you know, having a family that you could plug into probably made that a lot more livable. Oh yeah. I don't know how I would have done it if I didn't know anyone here. Um, and I mean, starting to build a creative community is a really important part of me staying here in, in a long, in the long term um, and having creative people, um, uh, around me, but it, I really enjoy being around my family here and getting to know them in a new way. And it's just, it's different when, uh, in the past I would come here for two weeks and, you know, we would all hang out and then like go home, separate our normal lives. But to have that like integrating together, uh, has made, it's just been really wonderful. And, um, I don't, I don't think this would have been as doable if I didn't already have, uh, a community here. So you mentioned that she's kind of confused about some of your weaving, but your Yaya must be very proud that you've published a book. Yes. I showed it to her first, actually, when I got my copies. Uh, she, I, 
It's interesting. So she always did fiber art. That was just, that was what you did. She did embroidery, knitting, needlepoint, cross stitch, uh, and a lot of lace making. There's a lot of lace making happening in Cyprus. Uh, and she actually taught me to knit when I was, I think it was like nine or 10. And that always stuck with me and it was something I did for fun. And so to be doing fiber art professionally, um, I'm really, I'm really grateful for her influence. Uh, but yeah, it's just like that I could turn this into my career. I think that's the confusing part. It's like, who are these people on the internet <laughs> who are like paying you to teach them and buying your things? And uh, she's 87. Um, and yeah, I mean, just obviously has like missed all that and doesn't totally understand it. But uh, she had a business of her own. Um, she would like make sandwiches and sell them at local elementary schools and had several people working for her and she did it for years and was very successful at it. And so um, I'll come and talk to her about like what I'm making and showing her what I'm making. And then she's asking me like, okay, so what's your profit margin? And I'm like, great. <laughs> Thanks for keeping me grounded. And like, very practical. Yeah, very practical. And so I'm like getting to know that side of her, which is very cool. Um, but yeah, she, she's very like, that's the part that's puzzling to her. <laughs> You said that you showed her the, the book when you first got it, but you weren't living there when you wrote the book, were you? I did. So I... Really? Uh, yes. So I had this publishing company reached out to me, asked if I wanted to write the book. I said, yes. I put together a pitch and they were like, okay, great. We'll get back to you. And then I didn't hear anything for a few months. And I was like, all right, this is not happening. And so in that time, my husband and I had decided to move to Cyprus and I just assumed it wasn't going to happen. And then two weeks before we moved, I got an email and they were like, all right, I got picked up. And I was like, yes, like, that's amazing. <laughs> but also now, like, where am I going to write this book? <laughs> like, so many things to like, figure out suddenly. And so um, I did it. I mean, honestly, I didn't really know what I was going to do when I got here. I knew I would weave, I would make work, I would meet people, but I didn't have a like, particular project. And so I, I don't know. It's really amazing how it worked out. I, um, yeah, I, that's what I spent the first like nine, 10 months doing was working on the book. That's funny. I just assumed that it, you know, because books can be such a long process. You mentioned that you moved there a year and a half ago. And I thought, surely this has been in the works for ages. So putting together a craft book, though, involves a lot of things like photography. And I see hands in it. Those are your hands, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, did they come to you or did you go to a studio somewhere? Self-timer. <laughs> Seriously? <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> Holy smokes. <laughs> wow. Okay. Yeah. Sorry. That's, that's, that's pretty remarkable. <laughs> yeah. Um, I think they were surprised as well because when I put the pitch together, I had to do like a demo project. And they were like, how are you getting your hands on here? And I was like, I don't know, self-timer. I think it's important to have the hands in the photos. Just I, I learn by photos. I can read instructions and I, I don't internalize it. I like need to see the pictures. And so um, that was something that was like really important for me to figure out is I wanted to show what this looks like as, as I'm like actually doing it. And so... Yeah, there were a lot of logistics to figure out like that. But uh, I mean, the main tools I needed was a good camera and a tripod and a self timer and it all it all came together. 
so I, I used to be a craft book editor and yeah, pictures are important. And I can't tell you how many days I spent in a studio with my hands or the author's hands under the camera, head out of the way while the photographer stood on a stool and got the pictures. Mm -hmm. so, doing all the pictures for this yourself. That's wow. Congratulations. That's, that's quite an accomplishment. <laughs> Uh, <laughs> Maybe it's the age um, of social media that kind of prepped me for that. I don't know. I'm like, you know, just for doing things online, it's like you have to yeah. figure out how to be your own photographer as well. And yeah, so I, I guess that benefited me here. You know, in a way that that's I hadn't thought about that when when folks are teaching online, I think there is a lot of figuring out how you can show what you're doing. And so I Probably people have been practicing that more in the years since I stopped being since I stopped mm. doing that work. Um, but did you did you shoot your the finished projects as well? No, I didn't. So um, once all of the projects were completed and I had done the step by step photography and written everything, I sent the finished projects to my publisher and they shot the bleed photos. Um, yeah, for and the and the cover as well. This is probably more more detailed inside publishing than anybody else is is curious about. But I was just wondering about that. And you, you know, you're sending them from from Cyprus. You must be getting pretty well acquainted with the post office there. Yes, yeah, the post office and DHL, and um, they're in uh, the UK. And so um, I don't know. They were really helpful in like helping me figure out all those details, but. Yes, yeah, the postal system is really interesting here, and I've spent a lot of time <laughs> a lot of time there. Uh, yeah. <laughs> so your your book is available in the U.S. and has has a U.S. publisher, but you didn't have to figure out how to work transatlantically. Yeah, so I actually have um I have a publisher in the U.K. and in the U.S. and so um they've handled all of that for me. So one of the things you mentioned was that you had done a lot of the research beforehand. What does research mean to you in this kind of work? So when I was first starting, I didn't really realize that was do what that was what I was doing. I have a background in art history as well, and uh, really enjoyed the going to the library and looking through the books and writing the papers and. Uh, didn't really think about it again until I was writing the book. But looking back, I can see how much of my work in general was was motivated by wanting to explore and investigate what was what was possible in circular weaving. And so, uh, I when I was offering my twelve month membership program in circular weaving, I was delivering a new project every month for those 12 months. And because of that, I had all these students who were like getting excited for the next thing. And that was really pushing me to continue developing my work. But even in preparing for that, I had done a couple of residencies that gave me access to incredible weaving libraries. Cause I'm sure, as you know, like so many of like the best weaving books are out of print <laughs> and really hard to get your hands on. And so I'm very fortunate that I was able to do that in other ways and find other ways to kind of get the information I was looking for that I didn't know I was looking for, but uh, I'm a big reader anyway, and I just really love a good library. And so 
being in that environment where I can just like get a whole stack of books and look through and get ideas and then like go back to the studio and see what I can make from that. Uh, that is honestly like my favorite part of this whole process. And so that's, that's kind of how this began. And it was a little bit out of time for several years. And until sun suddenly when I was asked, I was like, Oh yeah, okay. I have, I have enough for a whole book. <laughs> That's a that's some feedback I've been getting from people. So they're like, there's really there's really enough on circular weaving for an entire book, and it, yeah, there is. <laughs> so what you were researching was different kinds of techniques that have applied to weaving that are mostly done on like a multi shaft loom or maybe even a tapestry loom, mm-hmm. and then so it was like researching these other techniques and then figuring out how to apply them to your to your work. Is that right? Exactly. Like looking through things and being like, oh yeah, I, that like, that's really fun to do. Is it possible in a circle? And a lot of the things, a lot of times these things weren't, weren't possible in a circle, but some of them were, I'm, I remember I was looking through a book and like came across rib weave and I had done a lot of rib weave, um, when I was doing pattern and just like really liked the look with, you know, they're just really simple. Uh, and then when I started thinking about it in a circle, it was like, oh, but if when it's in a circle, then it's like radiating and it looks like a sun and that's really cool and interesting. And so doing that in a pattern, it was like, wow, I think this has always been meant for a circular loom and <laughs> was just waiting for somebody to do it. And so there's like, there's been a lot of moments like that where it's like, I try it in a circle and it's like, oh, I love this even more than I did before. And so that's been really fun. So what were some of your favorite resources? I'm trying to remember some of my favorite books. Um, definitely the pattern directory that I mentioned. Spent a lot of time looking through that. Um, also, uh, Kathy Todd Hooker's Shaped Tapestry book is really excellent. Uh, found a lot of inspiration from her uh, as well. So, yeah, I think those were probably my top two. But I... I think I've looked at like every weaving book. So they all kind of jumble together at this point. (laughs) (laughs) So you're looking at sort of traditional weaving technique books. And that, you know, that makes me think of different guilds and libraries and things like that. Do you find that um, the more sort of classic um, maybe tapestry or weaving community is open to what you're doing? I would hope that other weavers would be interested in anything new and different that's happening in the space because anytime somebody is bringing something new to weaving or doing it in a different way, it's it's pushing it into the future and and pushing it into a new direction that keeps it alive. But I think a lot of the time... Uh, there's a lot of resistance to that because people want to do things in the traditional way because that's how it's always been done. And I think that is such a disservice to the weaving community as a whole when people are resistant to anything that's different and new. So I've definitely witnessed like both sides of that and, you know, it is what it is, but I, I think that also kind of leads to a disconnect within weaving where we have this like weaving community happening in social media. And then we have a weaving community that's been established for a long time. And it's been, I've watched it be very difficult to bring these two worlds together. Yeah, I think it's a shame that, that it has to be so disconnected because we're all passionate about the, 
the same thing. One of the things that I really like about your book, there's a, a rigor and an attention to skill and different potential and, and bringing in the techniques that have done before. I wonder if one of the things that keeps people who have followed a more traditional path from welcoming something newer is, you know, that some sometimes people who, who have a new form um, aren't aware of the, the depth of technique and history and rigor that's gone before. So I wonder whether sometimes there's a little bit of skepticism there and that some of the research that you're talking about and the applications that you're using, you know, show that you really are exploring the historic traditional skills, the the kind of doing the work of understanding the breadth of weaving and, and applying it here as opposed to, I think, sometimes there can be people who, who feel that they've invented something even though it's a 10,000-year-old craft, or, or I shouldn't say 10,000, I meant a thousands-of-year-old craft. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you bring up a really good point. When people are first coming across this information, like on Pinterest or something, you you don't immediately see like where this is coming from. And a big part of my teaching has been to anytime I can, I'm like referring, I'm trying to put what we're doing into the context of the history of weaving because you know on the other side from what i was saying before like there's a there's a big disconnect there and people don't necessarily understand um where these techniques they're working with are coming from i mean a lot of the times we see sumac in this like blown up lovely way but there's not an understanding that this originates in persia and was done in these really intricate ways to weave animals and people and patterns and it was done on a really micro scale and the way we're doing it now is so simplified which is beautiful in its own way but oh god there's so much more we can do with that and uh so that has really been something I've tried to talk a lot about because I come from the teachers I've had are traditional. A lot of the inspiration and weaving I have is very traditional, but I'm doing all this on social media. And so I'm kind of have a foot in both worlds. So in my teaching, I, as much as possible, try to talk about the context and the history and where these techniques are coming from, because that's exciting to me. I, with the research, I love history. I love understanding where where this originates from. And I think it's also really important when um, coming across techniques, not all the techniques we come across are meant for us. Uh, and as someone who's very interested in my own personal history as, as being Cypriot, uh, you know, it would hurt me if somebody is taking the things from my tradition and turning them into a whole other thing. And so I think it's really important to talk about like culturally, where these things come from and, you know, we can appreciate something and not have to do it ourselves in order to enjoy it. And so it's, it's a fine line there. And, you know, then we get into a whole conversation about copying and that's a whole other thing, <laughs> but mm -hmm. yeah, I mean, the history and the context yeah. is really important and, um, mm -hmm. I don't know. Everybody's different, right? Not everybody like needs all the information, mm -hmm. but on some level it's so important to, understand and accept that there's a lot here that you don't necessarily know. You don't know what you don't know, I yeah. guess. And so we don't, we need more people talking about 
with the history of, of this work. And there is something beautiful about having a woven piece, you know, that, that you just like the colors of. And there's something, you know, really potentially life-changing just in having the yarn going through your fingers and understanding that there is a history and a depth and sometimes a, you know, and a rigor, even if you choose not to explore it, I think it's kind of respectful of, of the craft. Yeah. That's the word. It's, yeah. it's respecting, um, respecting the craft. Exactly. And it's also recognizing like anytime somebody is like sitting down and weaving something, doesn't matter how advanced or beginner it is, they're engaging in this history and being a part of this lineage. And that is really cool and really exciting. And we need to point that out to people. I think more, more people need to understand. It's like, yeah, this is cool. You're making this thing. And also like people have done this for so long. Like this is one of the oldest crafts and we don't necessarily have a lot of that work around because it deteriorates. It's not, it's not, um, mm -hmm. you know, these things don't last like other materials do, but yeah, I don't know. Just pointing to that like engagement and, and where it's all coming from is so, so exciting. Well, Emily, I know it's getting late where you are. So thanks so much for taking the time to tell me about your work and your book. And it has just been a pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. Uh, this has been so fun to talk to you, Anne. <laughs> thanks to Trainway Silks for sponsoring this episode. Thank you for listening to the Long Thread Podcast. If you've enjoyed this episode, please rate the show and leave us a comment on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast platform. Thanks again.